Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can learn everything you need to know about sustainable and ESG investing from leaders in the field. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. In today's program, we're going to explore why investors and advisors will want to learn about the Climate Search and ESG Ratings Tool that MSCI recently made available to the investing public. This means that we get to spend time with Herr Professor Bruce Kahn, who is an Executive Director and Climate Solutions Specialist at MSCI. He is also a lecturer at Columbia University in Sustainable Finance and Statistics for Sustainability Management. Hello, Bruce, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thank you, Paul. Nice to be here with you all. Yeah, it's a pleasure to get to our conversation teed up today. And I have a question first to come out of the gate here about how many companies these tools can cover. Now, is it really true that they can cover 3,000 companies and anyone can research the data on all of those companies if they like? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, on the public um, website, we uh, publish around 3,000 companies' ESG ratings as well as their um, implied temperature rise, meaning right. what kind of – what – um, temperature is the company's op uh, operational and emissions forecast associated with. So now let's talk a little bit more about that temperature rise um, uh, indicator. What, why is that important? What's, what makes that particular um, uh, data point significant in terms of why I would want to either consider that company for investment or not? Well, it's an important metric to understand, first, the company's current um, uh, emissions profile across okay. scope one, scope two, and scope three, um, as well as its projected emissions, um, including the decarbonization targets that many companies are now issuing. And so if companies really live up to what they are saying, you know, we can project what their emissions profile will look like. And it's also important to understand how your um, companies are doing relative to their peers. So it. it's not only um, an individual bottoms-up fundamental um, attribute of the company. It's also a really good comparative feature. Okay. Now, Bruce, let's, uh, you, you mentioned the scopes, the various scopes of emissions. Let's, yeah, I'm not sure that our audience really understands that concept of scope one, two, and three, and or three. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. What, what, are, what are they actually referring to there? Yes, great question. The, the greenhouse gas protocol that's been in development for over the past um, 25, almost 30 years now, has developed a really robust kind of methodology to understand the emission profiles of companies. And it first starts with the scope, the scope of the company. So we refer to the emissions profile of the company as their scope. So the first scope, scope one, is I have a, I have a company and the company has a facility and in its operations, it emits greenhouse gas uh, emissions. Um, CO2, methane, nitrous oxides, etc. And so when you have a facility, you can measure what your own CO2 emissions are. Many facilities buy electricity that come from various fuel types. And so 
we can measure how much um, emissions are associated with the various fuel types that the electricity that is purchased by that company. Um, and we call that the scope two emissions. So scope one is my direct emissions. Scope two is my indirect emissions. In other words, I'm buying electricity. What emissions were created to create that electricity? And then scope three emissions are emissions associated with all the products, all the feedstock I would use that are coming into my facility. So if I'm an automobile manufacturer and I uh, bring steel or plastic into my facility to make a, an automobile, that steel and that plastic, that had emissions associated with its fabrication. So that's the upstream scope three emissions. Then I go about my business and building my products and, and then that product goes out the door and then the, the consumer or customer uses that product and the emissions profile of the product in use is the downstream scope three emissions. And so in the automobile uh, uh, example, it is the use, it is the emissions that comes out of, a, out of the vehicle when running it on fossil fuels. So we're trying to capture all three scopes of emissions, including upstream and downstream scope three, in order to really gather as much information as we can about the profile of a company's emissions so that we can first know what we own. Second, um, you know, we and, and the company can um, uh, seek out to reduce those emissions. So imagine I'm buying electricity, I can choose to buy renewable electricity. If I'm buying, if I'm bringing in feedstock, that's heavy carbon emission feedstock, maybe I go to, go to the vendor who has the least carbon emissions um, per the feedstock. And then in the engineering of my own product, I'm going to try to make it as uh, emissions light as possible. So once we know all these scopes, we can then start to try to reduce them. Now, is that what MSCI, in other words, measurements of that nature across these various uh, categories, is that what MSCI uses to develop its individual company uh, ESG ratings, and then those ratings then uh, move, uh, I don't know whether they move upstream or downstream, but into sectors or industry ratings? Is that how, is that how the process works? Well, there's, there's two elements here. First, the um, E component of the ESG uh, rating and the G component of the ESG rating does include information about companies' position relative to policies and programs for redu re emissions reductions or its governance structure around climate. Absolutely, that's a, an important component of ESG ratings, and it's an co important component about understanding a sector or a sub-industry where the you know where climate and carbon emissions is a key performance indicator, a key you know idea there. Now, the second measurement that we have uh, um, called the implied temperature rise, that is simply a measurement of the company's uh, pr emissions profile and then uh, incorporating any decarbonization targets that they have may have announced. And it is, it is simply a measure of the degree temperature in degrees Celsius that this company's um, emissions profile portends for the world in 2100. So it's more of an impact metric. What's, you know, how much 
does this company contribute to global warming, if you will? Now, there's another metric that we also measure, which is, you know, when I always say, okay, so you have this, um, you have this degree warming. So what? Right. right. It's always right. the so what question. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the so what is, well, OK, well, how what are the risks of having such a high temperature rise, implied temperature rise? Well, the risks could be many. They could be um, a combination of physical risks uh, across. You know, we measure uh, physical risk of climate, um, climatic disruption to facilities at a, at a per company basis across nine different hazards. It could also be policy risk. So should the world come to an agreement this week in Scotland about a reduced uh, temperature target, um, and we're going to do that using, you know, in subsidies, taxes, incentives, et cetera, you know, what are the costs um, uh, and opportunities for that company um, to reduce its uh, implied temperature rise? And so that then there lies the information that an investor, whether you're a wealth management a client, a wealth management advisor, an institutional portfolio manager, or even a corporate can use this information now to kind of think about, okay, well, what is my business strategy? Where am I going to get my best return on invested capital for the least amount of climate risk I have? And so on the opposite side of that risk coin, of course, I would imagine are the opportunity sets that these ty this type of data produces for the company, for the sector, for the industry. Is that correct? That is correct. We are looking at companies' uh, technology profiles and their their patent um, velocity, if you will, and looking at where companies are investing. And we are evaluating companies relative to their peers as to how uh, uh, well positioned they are to capture revenue opportunities from a low carbon economy that much of this policy debate is, is uh, starting to telescope. So we are seeing companies, there is a great differentiation among companies, even within one sector, as to who is well prepared for a low carbon economy and who is not. So related to the actual reporting that the companies do, Bruce, there seem to be an awful lot of different protocols and uh, data platforms that companies can use. Uh, and even within the company, different parts of a company might be using different reporting mechanisms. Uh, how does a company like MSCI sort through all of that different information uh, and then integrate it into the recommendations that you make and the, and the indices that you build for investors? Well, Paul, we do it the old-fashioned way. <laughs> <laughs> and that is. <laughs> no, don't you recall? I, forget I remember. That, yeah. I remember. I forget the name of that uh, that that firm I, that uh, made that commercial, but it 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 really is that. It's hard work. It's bottoms up, data collection, data quality assurance, data checking. We do a lot of. Um, um, gathering of alternative information that needs to be sorted through. So we not only do we have you know, you know machine learning to help us do this, but we do a lot uh, by hand. Mm -hmm. And um, we're publishing just three you know twenty nine hundred companies to the public. But as a subscriber to ESG ratings and climate ratings at um, 
at MSCI, you, you're available to over 10,000 companies really? globally. So, um, and, and we are also launching into private private asset coverage as well, et cetera. But the key element here is um, we have to collect the information both um, through common kind of data tools that are out there today, but also just good old fashioned, roll up your sleeves and read reports by human. Now you mentioned uh, machine learning, I believe. Uh, there, there are lots of new technologies today that are being used for this purpose that can, uh, as I understand it, sift through like mountains of data so much faster than humans can. How important are those tools to your uh, processes of research and data gathering going forward? Well, they're they're a very important part um, of our work, uh, th but there is no substitute for quality checking by humans as well. Um, so we're looking. We we use tools to gather data. We uh, and uh, but we're also having human eyes overseeing the data. Okay, good. Now you there are other MSCI offers uh, uh, all kinds of tools to uh, sift through data and manage processes like this. Bruce, one of the other ones that I find uh, especially interesting is the ESG industry materiality map, which I believe takes certain data points by company, by sector, by industry, and uses them to uh, focus on what are the most material issues and data points for a particular company, sector, or industry? Is that um, information that gets reported to the SEC, or is this just a vol voluntary information process that's, uh, that companies are still going through? And do you expect that there's going to be mandatory reporting related to these types of processes in the future? Um, the materiality map that's available to the public really is a way of individuals to go online and look at a company or a, a sub-industry to determine which of the most um, key issues for this particular industry, particular industry for a variety of issues, whether it be carbon emissions or water stress or biodiversity and land use versus other social issues like human capital management, community relations, access to finance, and then obviously governance issues. And each sub-industry has various um, sensitivities to these issues in a different, in a different way. Um, you know, so for example, you know, uh, uh, you know, an oil sands mining company may have a tremendous amount of community relations issues associated with um, what's material to their business where that may not be as important to a healthcare company. So what we're, we're, what we're doing is we're providing um, the ability for people to look at what we think uh, the um, uh, most material issues are for uh, a sector. Uh, and then once you've done that, then you can look into the, into the company's uh, relative scores and, and on those issues. Uh, there, the, this is a tricky question about, is it um, going to be um, regulated by the SEC? And, and the answer to why it's tricky is because well, the answer is it already is. All of this stuff it already is required by the SEC to um, evaluate any financial risks, any, any risk that, that could come up to a company that could potentially impede their financial condition 
is a material risk and needs to be reported on. Hmm. Now, what the kind of ESG community and movement that you and I are all part of, um, we've been um, identifying and getting more, much more granular about the environmental and social issues that um, we understand to be financially material, but have not yet percolated up to this um, to the scale of the C-suite in many of these larger firms to make sure that they're financially that they agree that they're financially material at this time. But it is it is their responsibility to understand these issues and to uh, identify the the financial risks that any of these uh, ESG issues portend. And so the SEC doesn't really need to make any more rules. The, the rule is there. Hmm. It's just a matter of more education about how and more demonstration of how various issues are financially material. Bruce, let me raise one specific example of this um, part of our discussion that I think you're you're pretty familiar with. So the world of agriculture. Yes. And all of its related environmental um, issues, especially, uh, is one that I know you've put a lot of time and effort into understanding. Tell our listeners a little bit about what is happening there and why and why that will either, uh, like, as you say, raise to the surface with the regulatory infrastructure or continue to be something that is uh, a lot of people don't uh, know about or are aware of. Well, some of the key issues in the food and agriculture industries are exposure to um, uh, toxic chemicals, um, mm -hmm. exposure to uh, new machinery, um, and exposure to new agricultural products. And, and some of the key issues that are emerging there really are in the animal husbandry part of the world, as well as the, as well as the use of um, uh, pretty toxic pesticides and herbicides. Um, but on the animal industry side, it's really come to the fore around antibiotic resistance, where mm -hmm. We've been using antibiotics in our animal products, um, not as um, as uh, a remedy for a, a sick animal, but as a prophylactic and as a, a, a growth vector. Mm. And so, many of the food companies now have come out and said they they will not use antibiotics uh, throughout the the life cycle of their their uh, their, their animals. And so, in in order to reduce the amount of antibiotics that are in the environment that that a lot of the bugs have become resistant to, and you know, po you know, now that we're in this kind of post-COVID uh, world, you know, people have woken up to the fact that, uh, in a very real way, um, that you know, these bugs are killers. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, uh, we have to be very careful about what we what, what we do. The other thing I would distinguish between is food and agriculture. So a lot of people just lump this all together. There is no such sector as food and agriculture, right? You know, it with even within agriculture, you're, you, uh, if you look at the industry materiality map, fertilizers and agricultural chemicals are different, is a different sector entirely than um, animal husbandry or farm machinery or genetics for that matter, seeds. And so 
we have to look at each one of these um, cases case by case. And that, again, that's the old fashioned way of rolling up your sleeves and doing your homework on, on these companies and, and what the regulations and um, science is telling us about what some of the key indicators are. Now, of course, climate is going to have, it, it already is having a tremendous impact on agriculture development, mm -hmm. uh, not only in the developed world where, you know, our, our yields are 10 times that of some of the, um, some of the uh, developing worlds, but uh, in certain crops, but uh, the migration of these crops, where are they going to be able to be grown? Do we have the right agricultural infrastructure in place for the movement of crops north or westward or, you know, even south and eastward? And so what you grow and where is actually a really important and very um, uh, kind of difficult question to answer for, well, what am I going to do? Where am I going to be growing what 20 years from now? is a big difference so uh, than what we're doing today. So it's a really important um, topic to, to, to track. And um, I believe that food and agriculture is really on the front lines as much as uh, energy is um, than any other industry, uh, set of industries that is, um, from not only from the environmental issues, but also the social issues and, and uh, access to, um, to op opportunities and nutrition and health, access to, you know, good, you know, just, there's calories and then there's, you know, nutrients. And those are two different things. And um, that's also growing in disparity around the world. And so they, these are really part of what I guess a, a larger category of considerations would be called climate science related to these different agricultural and um, nutritional issues and that sort of thing as, as, as uh, climate change moves the the more productive areas of the globe or shrinks them or they move from east to west as you were saying there's going to be a lot of considerations there well yes as well as not only so it's not only about climate that is the vector so you have to think about precipitation and precipitation intensity mm. right about frequency and intensity but also um uh soil type right just because you have good you know just because you have good soil and no rain does not make a crop just because you have good rain and no soil does not make a crop. You really have to have both, you know? Um, um, and so there has been a lot of development in kind of soil less, you know, in indoor and environmentally controlled agriculture. Um, and those are some of the, some sectors we're looking out after. Uh, but I would, I, I would also just re remind people that while those are exciting industries, exciting technologies and developments from a kind of business world perspective, um, they're, they are absolutely tiny relative to the amount of kind of calories we produce globally. Um, mm. So it's one thing to have like some nice lettuce shipped into a white tablecloth restaurant in New York, but that does not you know, feed the billions. Right. Now, so Bruce, what other types of analytic systems and tools are uh, you and your team at uh, MSCI working on that you can tell you can talk about today that are really looking down the road at what's well, what's coming at us and what we're going into over the next 20 or 30 years related to climate issues. So we are um, spending a lot of time uh, monitoring policy changes um, and looking at how firms are evolving in terms of um, their geographical um, 
locations because <laughs> as different countries um, you know um, impose restrictions on carbon emissions, companies potentially could move out of those countries. So we're tracking facility by facility, the company by company, where they're operating and everything they're doing and, and keeping those emit emission models you know up, updated. Um, and that's because we think that you know in order to really kind of understand the financial risk um, of climate change to individual companies, you still have to understand kind of what the policy and economic landscape looks like. So we're constantly tracking that information while simultaneously monitoring companies' activities, um, companies' locations, um, and where their facilities are um, with the energy sources for those facilities, um, as well as technological developments that companies may be investing in um, and, and, and staying on top of that. And we're also, so that's one kind of set of activities. The other kind of um, mirror set of activities is expanding our, our coverage to include um, the private asset world. So we we recently um, uh, engaged in a strategic partnership with a, with a firm who has over $11 trillion worth of, uh, of um, private asset market information. So we're deploying our climate models, not only our footprinting models, but also our climate at risk models, uh, climate value at risk models to an, another $11 trillion worth of um, uh, market value to capture, you know, total portfolio approach. And I assume that you're doing that the old fashioned way as well. <laughs> <laughs> doing it the old fashioned way. Yeah. Although, you know, look, you know, the, the old, the old fashioned way, which is rolling up your sleeves and, you know, getting to fundamental information, but we're also using a lot of tools um, on the private asset side. It's really interesting because a lot of the a lot of the limited partners who own these assets are reporting the information into us. So um, you know, yeah, it's it it it, it it's hand done. Well, but that and that's fairly unusual on the private side, isn't it? I mean, private private asset managers are typically much more secretive about. Well, these the aren't asset. the managers; these are the limited. These are the investors. So it's the limited partners um, of the funds. Hmm. Okay, so tell me what the significance of that is, because is that has that historically been the way that the limited partners work with companies like MSCI, or is this a, a no? It's change? new. It's new. Okay. And yeah. why? And tell us why. What What's different about it? Well, it's new in that um, many of the limited partners, uh, as you know, are some of the large pension funds, um, endowments, foundations, even large wealth management groups, such as uh, some of the firms you've been working with. Um, you know, they want full transparency. And the only way to really do it is kind of like the old fashioned way. Like, you got to kind of get the information. So the LPs, as the end investors in these uh, general partnership funds, are demanding that they have more transparency into the funds because they want to know what they own. Not only you know so they can talk about it at cocktail parties, because but they also want to know because they want to. They they are um, trying to ascertain what kind of risk they're holding. This whole conversation around climate has really change the narrative of our whole ESG arc in that climate is no, you know, ESG um, heretofore has been kind of, you know, a little bit um, burdened by the values package, baggage, right? Like mm -hmm. when people still kind of think 
oh, ESG, it's kind of beauties in the eye of the beholder. And some people, one person's, you know, ESG is another person's GSE, you know, right? With climate, now, you know, the, the politics notwithstanding. So if somebody just like patently doesn't believe in climate science, there's no, you know, end of conversation, right? Done. But climate doesn't have this, these values laden kind of baggage. It is just economics and physics, mm. right? And so we're able to say, okay, look, these are models. We get that. But this is the, this is the economic model and this is the physical model. And this is what we think is going to happen. And we have various scenarios to test. Are any one scenario right? No. But it's about understanding the risk. And that's really where this is all this whole conversation, this whole arc has completely shifted to completely to talking about the risk. Why does anybody want to do all this? Um, is so they can understand the risk. You know, my former um um uh um partner at um when I was I used to be the trustee of the Jesse Smith Noise Foundation and the executive director there, a guy named Vic DeLuca, the mayor of Maplewood, by the way. Um Maplewood, New Jersey, um, you know, he kind of coined the phrase, you know, know what you own. And this was 20 years ago. Mm. And so only today are we really coming to see a lot of people um, get involved in that uh, and saying, know what I own so I can know what my risk is. Um, and, and I think that's going to have a positive impact on ESG writ large because the whole narrative, it was always very hard to get that conversation going um, because of the nature of ESG as being, um, ha as having had that kind of values baggage, which um, I never, I personally never thought of ESG as having any value. I've always think, thought of it as value. Um, anything uh, about the company that has um, impact on its financial condition is an investment question. Um, but nevertheless, many of the people out there still kind of have a knee-jerk anchored reaction to um, to ESG as kind of values like SRI type of stuff, where climate is not. And that kind of gives, you know, brings me to our kind of conversation starter, Paul, which was this industry has completely changed in the past. I mean, it's like the overnight, it's like the 30-year overnight success. <laughs> but 20 years ago, when I was a financial advisor at a big wirehouse, you know, I had executives in my office who'd say, oh, this, this SR, this green thing is nonsense. Today, when I joined MSCI, in the in the onboarding process, I had to go through compliance training, like you know every good person does. And now, you know, part of the compliance training was, you know, the you can't really talk about individual companies' ESG information because it is price sensitive information. Really? So even the compliance function now, uh, in many firms, not just uh, data vendors like us, but uh, managers, asset owners. They view the ESG profile of companies as inside information. That is whole cloth different from when that executive stood in my office and said, all this green stuff is nonsense. <laughs> Bruce, I think that's a perfect place to end <laughs> today's conversation, which we will come back to in the future. So thank you very much for your time. And tell us where we can learn more about all of these different tools and um, research analytics platforms that MSCI has out there. I'm sure there are multiple websites, but how can folks touch base with you if they want to learn more? Well, I would say the first place to touch base is the Net Zero Hub. So it's net-zero-hub. So dash, like not underscore dash, 
net-zero-hub, H-U-B, Dot com, which is our knowledge hub around net zero and, and climate. Um, for our ESG ratings and uh, implied temperature rise data and material map, materiality map, you can just go to MSCI.com and, and find it there. It's pretty well um, well advertised there. Or you can just do, do a quick um, web search of you know, ES, MSCI ESG rating or ITR rating. It's, it's okay, and what's your, what's your, web, what's your uh, handle at MSCI? How can folks reach out to you? Oh, I'm uh, Bruce.com, K-A-H-N, uh, at MSCI.com, dot com. K, K is in King, A is in Apple, H is in Happy, and N is in Nancy. Bruce.com <laughs> at MSCI.com. Bruce, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate that you spent this, this, uh, this, this time with us and helping us all, as long as well as the advisors and and investors that we work with, understand more about these different processes and analytics. Well, and thank you, Paul. Thanks for having us. Sure. Take care. Thanks again, Dr. Bruce Kahn, Executive Director and Climate Solutions Specialist at MSCI. And to our listeners, please join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Mm-hmm.